You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. It's possible, finally, maybe, maybe, that America's longest war is coming to an end. In the past week, the U.S. and the Taliban have concluded a kind of tentative peace agreement that could help put an end to this war that's been going on for such a long time, at least to U.S. participation in the war. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to break down what this agreement is, what we know about it, and uh, whether we have any sense of whether it is, in fact, actually likely to end the Afghanistan war. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. What's up? Is this the first Afghanistan episode we've ever done that that has, like, good news? I think we talked about how this was a possibility before, but, like, there's some good news here. Okay, so for once on Worldly, where we normally give you disasters and doom and gloom, we're here to talk about the potential for something better. So, Alex, I want to talk about what this actual agreement is. Like, how did it come about? Has the Trump administration been doing some kind of impressive diplomacy with the Taliban behind the scenes? So the Trump administration picked up where— the Bush and Obama administration somewhat left off, which was that, of course, they were still fighting the Taliban. And Trump was such a critic of the war and America's investment there that he wanted to find some sort of end to it. And you could start to see flickers of this early on when the entire sort of apparatus of the U.S. government wanted him to send thousands and thousands of more troops into Afghanistan. And he did end up sending about 3,000 more in in 2017 or so. But that was kind of his way of, of a negotiation of like, I'll send a couple thousand more, but I really want out. And over time, he added a special envoy for peace negotiations, a guy named Zalameh Khalilzad, who, who had done this before, and he's a former ambassador. And he'd been working with the Taliban for months, really, uh, multiple negotiations to try to finally come up to some sort of peace deal. What I should say is, and and I'll be honest, I've used it on the site too because it is the common parlance. It is not necessarily a peace deal yet. What it is is an agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban and some sort of side understanding between the U.S. and the Afghan government. But what it really does is not create peace in Afghanistan. It creates a, a memo of understanding so the Afghan government and the Taliban can start negotiating because that's the end game here. Now, there are important elements within the deal, and we'll talk about those, but just I want to set that up that it took a long time, a really long time, just to make it so the Taliban and the Afghan government could talk, and that was always the goal, to have them sort of come up with a diplomatic peace deal for the future of the country. So this agreement is, it involves the Afghan government, or is it just bilateral between the U.S. and the Taliban? 
there are two quote-unquote deals. The one that matters the most by far is the one between the U.S. and the Taliban, and that was to set up the conditions so the Taliban felt comfortable to speak with the Afghan government, which for years had it had been it derided the Afghan government as an American puppet and, and an entity it would never negotiate with. So the fact that the U.S. and the Taliban created conditions where the Taliban felt comfortable to talk was a big deal. And that was the main part of the agreement. There is a U.S.-Afghanistan section where they came to some sort of agreement as well, but that was sort of a memo of understanding where the U.S. was in effect saying like, hey, guys, here's what we agreed to. Here's what we're hoping you guys do. And again, the Afghan government did, you know, say like, okay, they signed off on it. But there are issues, clearly. It was not completely nailed down. And as we'll discuss, it's why there are a lot of stumbling blocks headed forward. The specific terms of the deal between the U.S. and the Taliban basically say that the U.S. will withdraw troops in about 14 months as long as the situation is fairly stable and the talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government are underway and going somewhat well. Um, It doesn't say you guys have to make peace, you guys have to come to a full power-sharing arrangement. There's nothing like that. Um, And it does say that the U.S., retains the right to to keep some troops in Afghanistan uh, if it, you know, decides it needs to. But I don't want to just go too far before we just realize how huge and historic a moment this is. And we're going to obviously get into why this could just, you know, all fall apart and, and why this is really problematic in a lot of ways. But the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump, was on the phone with the head of the Taliban for about 30 minutes or so. That is something that if you had told me in 2001 or even in 2010 was a possibility, would have been staggering. And there was also a photo that, that a Wall Street Journal reporter took showing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo shaking hands with a representative of the Taliban. I kept staring at it like, I can't believe we're here. I can't believe this is a thing. So I just want to kind of stop it and really realize that like this is something that the U.S. has been working towards for a long time. That doesn't mean this is the end-all, be-all peace deal. Everything's fine. We're going to leave. Everything is going to be great. Right. Let, let, let's, <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about what it actually does, right, in concrete terms, right? So the top line of this agreement is that the United States will withdraw its troops on a 14-month timeline unless the U.S. decides, and it has reserved its right to do so, that the Taliban is not fulfilling its end of the deal. Which is what, exactly? What does the Taliban have to do for the U.S. to be like, okay, we're actually going to stay beyond 14 months? Uh, And importantly, even within about 135 days, the U.S. will reduce troops to 8,600. NATO troops as well are going to go. That's just an important thing to note. What they're looking for is that there is a reduction. And I think – and I do want to play a clip from uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, the Army General – who is talking about kind of this exact thing when they say they want or they're looking for a reduction in violence. He's pretty specific about what he's talking about, or at least trying to set expectations for, for what he means. I would caution everybody to, to uh, think that there's going to be an absolute cessation of violence in Afghanistan. That is probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to go to zero. Uh, so this, this is a significant step forward. Uh, this agreement, and it's going to lead to inter-Afghan dialogue, and it ultimately leads to a peace agreement. Uh, But to think that it's going to go to zero immediately, uh, that probably is not going to be the case. So what he's making pretty clear there is that they're looking for the Taliban and the Afghan government not to really fight each other anymore, for the Taliban not to attack American troops anymore, or at least not at higher levels. They want a reduction in violence for the time being that makes it manageable and doesn't necessarily break the peace process. So 
there were attacks recently and required the U.S. to strike the Taliban. There were some people going, wow, I can't believe this is falling apart already. Uh, I actually don't believe this is, you know, crisis management by the Pentagon. I think this is very clear that they're going, they're not expecting zero violence throughout a months to years long process. They're expect, they do want, though, to show the Taliban is serious, a reduction in that violence, although that is not necessarily um, identified and well spelled out. Okay, so we don't actually know what the conditions are. It's not like it says there are X, Y, and Z rules that the Taliban breaks, and if they break them, then the U.S. gets to keep its troops. It's just sort of a judgment call by the U.S. government? In a sense, and in fact, when, you know, Mike Pompeo was asked about, you know, what are the implementation plans, how do we make this happen, uh, he was saying, oh, there's this secret annex, and we're going to send it to Congress, and they did. They sent a secret annex to Congress. And then I've talked to people who have seen the classified materials, and they've said, yeah, there's nothing special in these annexes that isn't already public. What? So why, why make up this, like, shenaniganry of a fake secret annex that spells out and solves everything? Like, what is the point of that? Because I think they know that this is – I'm not – I'm trying to walk a fine line here between, like, celebrating what is actually a, a way forward and also knowing that this is a mostly a cosmetic thing. It is a way forward in that, look, the U.S. is actually taking steps towards ending the war and leaving, and I think that's a well and good thing, even though, as we'll talk about, some bad things will probably happen. But there's clearly kind of a an understanding here that they want troops out, they're going to pull troops as best they can, but they know that the Taliban's probably going to do some bad stuff in the meantime, and there's really no other way forward or a way to solve that. So the hope is that if the Taliban is showing some seriousness by reducing violence from their levels, that's at least one quantifiable way of showing they're serious about negotiations. Yeah, and I think what's important is that in the absence of a more detailed agreement, um, there are a lot of things that that are, are left out that I think are really important that were actually part of earlier attempts to get an agreement, right? They were part of earlier negotiations. And there are a couple of really important things that I want to flag. Um, the first one is... As far as we know, again, there could be this, you know, existence of classified things that we don't know about, but there, there's nothing that lays out the terms of what those talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government have to be or what the end goal has to be. There's nothing that lays out, you know, you must come to a power-sharing arrangement. You must make sure that the Taliban, you know, guarantees rights for women, guarantees representation of X amount of women, guarantees that, you know, women are allowed to go to school and work and leave their houses, which— you, you know, for those of you who didn't, you know, live or don't remember the early parts of Taliban rule of Afghanistan, women couldn't leave their houses without an escort. It, they were forced to cover themselves from head to toe. So there's nothing like that. There, there are no mechanisms in there that say that you have to disarm, you know, Taliban or that the Taliban and the Afghan government have to merge forces. There are a lot of very serious things that are not in there that are, are huge elements of any future actual workable power-sharing arrangement or diplomatic solution to the war. There's another really important thing, and, and this goes to something that Trump actually talked about recently. Even in the last kind of iteration of these talks that we saw, you may remember Trump almost invited the Taliban to Camp David. Um, on the 9-11 anniversary. Yeah, on the anniversary of 9-11, it was really controversial. He ended up calling it off because there were some attacks, and they didn't end up signing this agreement. But during those talks, one of the big elements was that the Taliban was going to have to renounce terrorism, renounce al-Qaeda, renounce ISIS, renounce the justification for the 9-11 attacks, and basically pledge to not let any terrorist groups operate within its territory. Now, this ignores the fact that the Taliban itself is a terrorist organization. Putting that aside, none of that is in this agreement, right? The Taliban didn't say, yes, 
we agree that we did a bad thing by allowing Osama bin Laden to, you know, plot and carry out 9-11 attacks from our territory. We renounce al-Qaeda. We renounce ISIS. There's none of that in here. There's no pledge to continue to fight terrorism. So when Trump talked to the Taliban the other day, he came out and said, they will be killing terrorists, referring to the Taliban. They will be killing some bad people. They will keep that fight going. That is a very, very questionable statement. Very. No, no, no. I want to um, – you do not under any circumstances, et cetera. But like sort of in Trump's defense on this point, the Taliban has been pretty ruthless when it comes to the ISIS presence in their country, right? There has been a reason why um, – I forget what the name, I think it was like something like Khorasan province or something like that. That um, ISIS-K, yeah. Yeah, ISIS-K, that they had been uh, trying to build up, that it had, hadn't really taken a foothold or become a major player in the Afghan conflict. And it's not just that the coalition forces were against it. It's that Taliban-aligned forces believed that they didn't want a more radical presence in their midst. They didn't want ISIS there. They saw it as a threat to their control over power. I'm not saying they're altruistic and like concerned about there being an international terrorism stronghold in Afghanistan. I mean, come on. But they do seem to see the presence of these other groups as a threat. And if you had been nearly destroyed by the U.S. in 2001 as a result of the 9-11 attacks, I think you would rationally not want to become a launching pad for international terrorism. I will say quickly, though, and I agree to some degree with that analysis. However, it's important to actually understand who this ISIS in in Afghanistan really is. For the most part, and, and part of it is they they ISIS wasn't able to get a super strong foothold in part because the Taliban, like you said, you know, wasn't super excited about that. But the problem here is that the, mostly what we call ISIS in Afghanistan now is essentially the Taliban. It's just factions of the Taliban who are far more radical who kind of splintered off and decided we're going to rebrand. Uh, and then there's maybe like one or two guys from Syria that ISIS sent to say like, yeah, hey, you know, we'll we'll keep a line open to to the you know the headquarters back home. And the reason I'm bringing that up is it it actually matters very seriously because the role that these groups, that these splinter cells, that the far more radical elements of the Taliban can play as a spoiler in peace negotiations is is not zero. It's very serious. And so if, for example, you know, the Taliban has now signed a peace agreement or a peace, you know, sort of uh, memo of understanding, whatever we're calling it, with the United States, that in and of itself is something that a lot of people who are far more radical, far more extremists within the Taliban or on the fringes or, or you know, splinters off are going to be very, very, very unhappy about. And if they sit down now and start talking to the Afghan government, which, you know, they have opposed for their whole existence, they were the Afghan government for a while. They believe they are the, you know, legitimate rulers of Afghanistan. That's going to probably piss some people off. And the the likelihood that they could then, you know, further attempt to try to play spoilers and see further attacks that are you know, questionable, is this the Taliban? Is this ISIS? And is this the Taliban not controlling ISIS? You know, it, it, it gets really, really messy. And so that's kind of where I think Trump's statement that they're going to be killing the terrorists is a little too glib and simplistic for the reality on the ground. It's one of those situations where lines of control are murky. It's unclear right. who's affiliated with whom. There's some degree of Pakistani influence over all of this. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a complex and, and very difficult to penetrate for outsiders. And analysts are sort of guessing based on publicly available information to try to make sense of what's going on. Uh, it also does strike me that the incentives of the Taliban, and I think rightly, wants the U.S. gone because that will give them more bargaining leverage with the Afghan government, then they will have an incentive 
to crack down on the more radical fringes or if there's some kind of attempt to play spoiler, to conduct an attack during further peace negotiations, to police their own people or people who are broadly speaking on their side. I mean, that that all depends on a certain set of assumptions about the Taliban leadership's mindset, which is that they actually want the U.S. out under negotiated terms rather than just, you know, fight it out until the U.S. unilaterally withdraws. But under those assumptions, then Trump's comment and sort of the general framework and theory behind the U.S. approach here makes a lot more sense. And I think that's defensible, if not obviously correct. Yeah, and, and I agree with that. Uh, I made a little eh, iffy hand motion <laughs> yeah, yeah, while Zach yeah, yeah. was talking. That's why I was like, uh, oh, kind of <laughs> did I screw um, up there? No, I, I think you're right. I think the argument of whether or not this is truly negotiated terms on on both sides that the U.S. and the Taliban have both come from a position of relatively equal power and are now negotiating the terms of withdrawal or whether this is literally the Taliban fought it out until the U.S. decided to withdraw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can argue, and we have a, a really smart piece on this site by a, a freelance writer who interviewed a lot of people on the ground in Afghanistan about what they think about the potential withdrawal of U.S. troops. And and one person he spoke with said the U.S. is negotiating the terms of its surrender, which is a very stark kind of realization. Now, whether or not you agree with that, it's obviously, you know, very nuanced. But there is very much a perception that the U.S. is just kind of throwing up its hands and walking away and trying to come up with the thinnest veneer of, sure, there's a peace agreement, everything's going to be okay, now we can finally get the hell out of here. I want to take a short break now, but when we come back, that's exactly the theme I want to pick up on. I want to talk about the big picture here, starting with with the sort of question that I think a lot of Americans have, which is, did we just lose? Did we just agree that we've lost? What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We are talking about the Trump administration's uh, peace deal with the Taliban or tentative sort of peace deal. And, you know, we, we were talking just before the break about whether or not this constituted some kind of surrender. And I think when I when I first heard the news and I've started to think about it more over the course of the past week or so, I, I keep thinking of the U.S. agreement to withdraw from Vietnam, right? right. It really in some ways strikes me as the same thing, where it, it was billed at the time as a peace agreement. We're finally ending this really long and bloody war. But what it meant in practice is that the U.S. was going to leave and then everybody knew the South Vietnamese government was going to fall and the Viet Cong were going to take over the entire country. And that's, of course, what happened. So I, I guess my question for you two uh, to start off this uh, cheerier half of the conversation is, does this just mean the Taliban's going to win? that we're going to go back to Taliban-dominated Afghanistan in the way that we saw in the 1990s? Or is it uh, not exactly like the Vietnam case, but a little bit different? I I'm, I, I still struggle with this. Um, so on, I'll come at it with how I initially always think of this, which is the U.S. had more leverage to make a peace deal way earlier in this conflict. Yeah. Uh, way, 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 way earlier when we had basically disrupted everything the Taliban had built in Afghanistan, uprooted them from Kabul, um, pushed them to the fringes of the country. And 
the decision by U.S. lawmakers at the time, the Bush administration, and to a certain extent, the early part of the Obama administration, but I would put this more on the Bush times, um, they were like, no, we're going for full defeat. They surrender everything. They change everything about themselves. And peace kind of sprouts throughout Afghanistan. They didn't take the opportunity to go, this is the weakest the Taliban has been in years. They might make a more favorable deal with the United States right now. Instead, they went for full defeat. And that decision led to more 20-ish years of constantly fighting with the Taliban. And now the Taliban arguably is more powerful than it was in 2001 by controlling more land, having a lot of money. Um, Obviously, they're not in charge of Kabul now, but they are in a position to take it over if and when um, the United States and NATO forces leave. They do also, I just want to say, you have another piece, and we'll link to this on the site. They control, like, villages that are just on the outskirts of Kabul. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's pretty stark. Right. So this notion that like this is a surrender now i think it's a very late realization that this like it's oh, if we don't make a deal today it's going to be a worse deal tomorrow it's going to be a worse deal the next day because we're the momentum has shifted so i i just think of it as like it's not a surrender surrender would imply there is a absolute loss here i think like the objectives that we set were way too high so yes in ter- in those terms it is a loss but like I don't see it as a loss to get out of a situation that is unwinnable, if you know what I mean. Like, if, if, you, if the rules, if the, if the game is stacked against you, um, then it's hard to lose something. You just deluded yourself into thinking you could win. I guess that's where I'm coming from on this Afghanistan situation. That it was never winnable, and this is the best we're going to get today. Precisely. And, and, and if we don't do it now, it's going to be worse tomorrow. And so I, I think of it as like a total blunder and a mistake that it took this long. And it, that is why I'm trying to walk this fine line between like, yes, this is, there's a lot of problems with this deal. And I know we're going to talk about that very uh, shortly. But I also think on the grand scheme, if you didn't do this now, it's going to be worse later. And so you have to do it as soon as you can. Yeah, Alex, I, I kind of come down very similarly. I, I'm very torn. I'm very ambivalent on the Afghan war in general and on on how to end it. I know a lot of people who are veterans and a lot of them are, are tired of forever war, right? That's that's the that's the hashtag, right? That's the the common refrain is that we need to get out of this war. We're just sending you know U.S. soldiers into this churn to die for no reason. Um, we're not getting anywhere. The Taliban's just getting stronger. And I agree that this war needs to end. And so if it's going to end, this is essentially what we have to do, right? We have to figure out a way to cut our losses and leave. And so that's where we are. And I think you know what are the other options? The other option is just we continue to stay. Uh, and just continue this kind of muddled half war. Or, you know, we do a full surge again and we try to actually do the thing that the Bush administration, the Obama administration tried to do, which is the full defeat of the Taliban. There's zero appetite for that anywhere uh, among NATO troops, among U.S. forces, in the U.S. government, among the U.S. population. It's never going to happen. On the other hand, we are in a position where I go back to the old, you know, Colin Powell, you break it, you bought it. We did invade. We did, we did fight this, you know, almost 20-year-long war. Afghanistan is very changed. It's very different. You know, women are empowered. Women are serving in, in the legislature. Women are, you know, working and going to school and, and you it's know. Undeniably better. Right. And and my deep, serious concern is what happens when the U.S. finally leaves. If the Taliban were to do, as you said could happen, you know, in the Vietnam case, right, to just completely then take over Kabul and reestablish itself. I don't know if it has the ability to do that or not. The Afghan security forces and military are not that strong, especially without our help. But say they do that. 
What will then is there for the United States to go back in and push them back again? I, I worry I don't think there is any, which means that it's possible we would just see that happen. And that is really, really scary to me. It's scary to a lot of women in Afghanistan. It's scary to a lot of men in Afghanistan. It's scary to a lot of people. On the other hand, I, I do want to make a point that the Taliban of today is not necessarily the Taliban of 2001, exactly. yep. which is also not the Taliban of the 1990s. This is not to say that the Taliban is some shining beacon of human rights. And I in no way want to apologize or defend any of their behavior whatsoever, of course. But they are a different organization than they were in 2001 when they ruled. They have moderated to some degree in the sense that they literally have sat down with women across the table to negotiate uh, in Doha, women who are part of the government or women who are activists, they have been willing to sit down. They have been willing to sit down with the United States government and talk. This is a different organization. This is literally physically different people run the organization now because after 20 years, people have died and, you know, new people have taken over. And they have seen that their strategy of, you know, full domination is probably also not sustainable and that, you know, they have moderated to some degree, which is to say I don't necessarily think if the Taliban were to completely take over, it would be 100% facsimile of what it looked like when they ruled Afghanistan before we invaded. I do think it would still be terrible. And so that is my biggest fear here, that if the U.S. troops are gone, we have no longer have any leverage in the country to push back the Taliban if they decide to make a full rush for Kabul. And that is really terrifying. It's, um, it's an interesting question, that, that point that you raised about the Taliban being different, Jen, because it, it strikes me as one of these – situations where you have a series of competing theories as to how an organization might behave in a context that it hasn't been in in a really long time. And so one argument that I can see is that the Taliban, while the, it knows the U.S. wouldn't just intervene to get into another really long war again, that under certain circumstances, it could invite international reprisal or breed another uprising from people who don't in Afghanistan, who aren't willing to go back to the way that things were prior to 2001. So you have a, a question of the extent to which a highly ideological organization has, over the course of 20 years of war, become more tempered and more realist, more concerned with holding and wielding power than a particular ideological approach that might compromise its support in the population, its potential international influence and risk some kind of backlash from the United States again or other NATO countries just because, you know, if you've been fighting for 20 years, maybe what you want is not only to stop fighting but but to govern primarily. And what you care about first and foremost under those circumstances is, is power and security. Uh, and so you can imagine a much more realist Taliban in a right. certain sense than the one that we've had before, which does not mean that they would abandon their particularly harsh interpretation of Sharia law altogether. They wouldn't, it, as, as you were saying. It's it's just a question of how tempered ideology becomes by the exigencies of trying to be a government. I mean, we've seen in some occasions where the Taliban goes into small towns, they have, again, they have not defended women's rights, but they have definitely moderated their stances because they realized that they kind of lost the population with their right. with the hardline interpretation. And so they've moderated to get more people on their side, which is actually kind of scary when you think about it because then when we leave, they might actually get more support and they may actually be a, a leading coalition with that isn't just seen completely as this horrifying entity, although it is. Um, but I do want to get back to some skepticism in the actual deal here. So 
Um, first of all, I, I don't trust the Taliban as far as I can throw them, and I don't think anyone should. They have, they have proven themselves to be an untrustworthy group. And yeah, I mean, there's the a Taliban. Group. I don't no, think exactly. anyone is taking no, their right. intentions no, all No, exactly. All and so, right. And we're already seeing a problem with the actual deal. So, okay. The big stumbling block here so far is that the, the Afghan government and the Taliban are supposed to start negotiations in Norway on March 10th. All indications, and, and I'm talking to senior Afghan officials in the moment, shocking the Taliban not returning my calls, um, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen as of now for the simple reason that they have reached— um, Sorry, I'm just figuring you're just, like, making calls to the Taliban. I have texted with them. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> 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 Alex Ward, by the way, is a very serious, very real reporter. In case anyone was wondering— He's a very talented reporter. Wait, what happens, uh, like, you know, when you get on a flight now that you've been texting with the Taliban? Does the U.S. government be like, this man with his with his beard and, and his <laughs> Taliban phone numbers on his text? No, it's— Maybe it's, get some extra it's screening? Through, it's through the press team of the—the the Taliban has a press team. <laughs> hey, like, <laughs> if the president can talk on the phone with the Taliban, yeah. damn it, so can you. That's, <laughs> I don't anyway. think it works that way. <laughs> um, also, I bet the Taliban doesn't call you and yell at you off record in the way that some that's U.S. So true. Everything they say is true. on the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's on background too, like a Taliban official. But like, at least anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, that gets inside baseball. Well, the most important thing here <laughs> for this deal okay. uh, <laughs> is the they're already at an impasse. The U.S. and the Taliban agreed on one thing that there would be a prisoner exchange. Right. The Taliban would have five thousand of its prisoners held by the Afghan government released, and then the Taliban would release about a thousand or so fighters from the Afghan government and others. And that would be the sort of goodwill sign before they start negotiations on March 10th in Norway. It does not look like it's going to happen because the Afghan government is quite serious about saying, uh, we're not doing that. This is something we can discuss. We can discuss a prisoner exchange during our negotiations, but that's not a precondition for talks. And I've been told this explicitly by a senior Afghan official that that is their best leverage or one of their best leverage uh, points against the Taliban in talks is if you want your guys back, um, you're going to have to make some sort of deal with us. Uh, and so— I just want to cut it really quickly. I don't want to interrupt, but, uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right, if you're negotiating with this group that wants to essentially take over your government— you don't give them 5,000 more guys and go, here you go, we just made you a whole hell of a lot stronger. Right. Yeah. And so the U.S. and Taliban agreed to this, by the way. They agreed that there would be this prisoner swap uh, in their version of the deal. And then, the, like, immediately the Afghan government came out and was like, uh, we didn't agree to that. That's not part of our agreement. And, in fact, this is something that we and the Taliban need to work out. And so— the talks to have talks are still ongoing. This notion of having a March 10th um, like peace summit or round one of a, of a months but very likely years-long negotiation, that's not even off the ground. So if I – I mean this – we're taping this on March 5th. Um, my guess is by March 10th when this was supposed to start happening, I don't think we're going to have those talks. I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but based on my conversations with uh, – with, well, just one side now, but also just knowing where the Taliban stands, it doesn't look good for this sort of peace negotiations to actually begin when they're supposed to. On top of that, you're, you're totally right, Alex. And on top of that, we saw just recently, just a, a few days ago, um, the Taliban attacked an Afghan checkpoint. Yep. Right now, they didn't attack U.S. forces, which, again, you know, there wasn't even something that said you can't attack us ever, you know, whatever. There was just a reduction in violence. But they did— launch an attack, and then the U.S. responded with an airstrike against Taliban fighters in Helmand. So there already has been still back-and-forth violence. And so a lot of people saw this and were like, 
wait a second, does this mean the deal's over? And that's why I think it's really important, the, the point you made earlier, Alex, at, at the top of the show about how, you know, General Milley said, no, this is not, we're not going to see zero violence. So do not expect to see that. The goal is an overall reduction. And so you're going to continue to see some of this. And I think that's where they're kind of trying to set the expectations is like, look, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be zero violence, but we're working on it. And, and just one more point is, and, and this actually goes to something that Zach was talking about, is when the Taliban attacks it's hard to still know kind of what they're saying as a signal because because yeah. part one is well the Taliban is not monolithic it has tons of factions and tons of people who are very upset with these diplomatic efforts and so they could be making an attack as a way to as a signal to the leadership of the Taliban to say we're not abiding by this nonviolence or reduction in violence um section and it could also be the Taliban trying to get more leverage ahead of talks with the Afghan government saying right. if you if you guys don't want, you know, more violence against your troops, you guys should make a, a deal that's better for us now. And so we're still like at a time when we're celebrating, look, we've made this great step. And, and again, I will reiterate, I think this is good that we're moving towards the end of the war. Like we're nowhere close. And, and we have taken a baby step. Yay. We're closer than we've ever been. But let's be very clear that we're like nowhere near the finish line. So I like I want to situate this agreement on a spectrum between uh Trump's various fake deals with North Korea that have done nothing, and the Iran nuclear deal, which actually did a lot of things, right? Where, in your assessment, does this agreement fall between well, fake agreement and real agreement? It's better than with North Korea because we at least have, like, some momentum. Uh, and there are going to be troop withdrawals. Like, that is a thing that is happening. And both sides more or less agree in terms of the U.S. and the Taliban on what they agreed to. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. is not the case with North Korea. Right. Um, so I think it is better than North Korea. Obviously, it, this is way, 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 way less intricate um, and, and less good than the Iran deal. Also, um, just to be clear, the Taliban does not have nuclear weapons. Right, exactly. <laughs> not, not that Iran. Okay. Sure, sure. So, like, I, I hope I, no one was confused about that. Then I guess I'll put <laughs> Right, but still. So maybe in, uh, in both a good and bad way, this is probably the best diplomatic thing that Trump has done. Uh, it is, it could lead to the end of a war, of course, all the caveats of it is going to be bad for a lot of people in Afghanistan if and when we leave. That still applies, but it is also an unalloyed good that we that we are going to get out. So there's a step in that direction. The Afghan government and the Taliban are at least talking about talking, which is still a pretty big step forward. Uh, and there are concrete things happening. But we are nowhere near the finish line, which would actually make this like a historic real achievement. We've talked a bit uh, in previous episodes about the 2020 Democratic candidates for president and their positions on various foreign policy issues, in particular Afghanistan. And when I think about this, uh, whether this is a good deal or a bad deal, I think about what, you know, the candidates were still in the, in the race. So Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders both. And, you know, Biden, to some degree, has a, a bit more of a kind of conventional, you know, centrist position on, on Afghanistan. But if you look at, at, say, like a Bernie Sanders presidency, right, for example, if he were to win the primary and then win the general, I don't see where he would be able to get any better deal necessarily or how it would be substantively different, right? I don't see a a, a generally roughly non-interventionist, although he's not completely non-interventionist. He does think that U.S. military power should be used in some situations. But I don't see him doing a massive surge to try to push the Taliban back and get a better deal, right? And so if we're looking at, you know, a Trump administration attempt to get a deal with the Taliban, I do think this is – it could have been stronger, yes – but whether we could have gotten that stronger deal, 
is questionable, right? And I think that goes to your question, Zach, about the Iran deal, right? A lot of the criticisms of the Iran deal, we won't get into it in detail, but were that, yes, it was a good deal on a lot of in a lot of ways on the nuclear problem, but it didn't go far enough in other areas, like the ballistic missiles, like its support for terrorism around the region. And so, you know, when I was talking earlier about this deal, saying, yes, it does start the, the process, and that's good, but it doesn't include things like renouncing ISIS and, and al-Qaeda and terrorism. It doesn't include making sure that they're going to support women's rights, et cetera. So I think in that way, it's somewhat similar because it is a good first step. It does, I think, by all accounts, this is a positive step. Bottom line. Everyone uh, in our current podcast taping room right now knows someone who, and probably someone close to them, who has fought in Afghanistan, right, and been there and seen the conflict. And, And we all know from talking to military families and seeing them what a toll the U.S. presence there takes the constant deployments, the injuries, the PTSD, uh, the, the the deaths, you know, the people who've lost uh, spouses, children, uh, siblings. And, and it just – we are not Afghanistan's colonial overlords. We are not in Afghanistan forever there to set the terms of the peace agreement. After a certain point, the United States needs to say – We can't tell Afghans what to do. If we ever could, we lost the ability to do it when, as Alex was suggesting earlier, we didn't strike a deal with the Taliban in the 2000s. Now we've made our choice. And it it strikes me that while all of these negative consequences and critiques of, of a potential withdrawal deal, they're all real and serious, there is no better option than for some kind of U.S. withdrawal. Because otherwise what happens is we keep attempting to impose some kind of reality that we can't create. And in doing so, we sentence more people to lose their spouse, more Americans to be injured, to get PTSD. We kill Afghans in these strikes, Mm -hmm. civilians that we do, in fact, kill. We're not not innocent here. We're not just killing, quote unquote, bad people. And even a lot of these Taliban fighters are not necessarily evil anti-American people. They're just people who are fighting on one side of a civil war. And I think that under those, these conditions, the hubris that the United States needs to stay in Afghanistan indefinitely and that we can tell people how to live there, I think that needs to end. And if there's one thing that I take that's positive out of this, it's a reconceptualization of the limits of American power. And that, I think, is if we can sort of move in that direction as a result of agreements like this, I think for all the downsides, it'll be worth it. Yeah, and and I just want to add, uh, and I I agree for the most part, um, one of the things when I was talking earlier about how, you know, if the Taliban were to completely take over, what would we do? It's important to to recognize that, again, it, it would potentially be very, very bad for the people and in particular the women of Afghanistan. But it's also the case that there were a lot of regimes in the world who are very, very bad on human rights and who do horrible things, who repress women, who repress minorities, you know, religious minorities, who, you know, China has, you know, is putting thousands of of Uyghur Muslims in what in effect are concentration camps or re-education camps, right? And we deal with these regimes and we have mechanisms to beyond just full-scale invasion, right? We have mechanisms that we can use. We have levers that we can use to push them on human rights. So even if the worst case scenario were to happen and the Taliban were to just sweep in and take over, I think there, even then, it doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. needs to full-scale invade and occupy a country for another two decades. I left this for the end 
because, well, first, normally in any episode, I would let those nice sweeping general, you know, uh, those nice sweeping statements land. But in case you haven't followed the Afghan war, I, and we try not to do numbers too much on this show, but I think in this case, the numbers are important. Yeah. Um, this is from the Council on Foreign Relations, which we'll link to. I will just go through a couple of them, but just keep this in your mind when you think about how to think about this Afghanistan peace deal. More than 157,000 people have died in the war since 2001. That's 43,000 civilians, uh, 2.5 million Afghan refugees worldwide, um, 2,400 Americans killed, another 20,000 injured, 1,100 NATO troops, 45,000 Afghan troops and police officers were killed in the last five years, and of course, tens of thousands of Taliban fighters since 2001. Staggering numbers plus, you know, billions and billions spent, uh, arguably trillions. So... Keep that in mind when you think about, you know, should we stay, should we go? As you're deciding, we're not just talking about the notion, as Zach correctly pointed out, the limits of American power, how the U.S. should con consider dealing with autocratic regimes. This is real on human toll levels, uh, and those numbers uh, should matter to you. Yeah, and also just, you know, Malala Yousafzai getting shot in, in the head for trying to go to school. Precisely. Very specific human toll. So, yes, the stakes here, uh, Jen, could not be more serious. Um, and I, I, I have a degree of tempered hope for the first time in a while, but that's not to say everything's going to be fine. To get this, uh, this conversation all out there, obviously, we need our, uh, our support team and really want to thank them here. Our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producer, Bird Pinkerton. We want to give a shout out to our old producer, Jackson Beerfelt. Jackson, thank you so much for everything you've done. And uh, we want to, uh, you know, wish you the best. As for you, Worldly listeners, as usual, we want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. Uh, we will see you all next week. Happy birthday, Christine. Happy birthday. That's Alex's wife. Uh, and happy birthday to her. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.